Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, reminder, really trying to up our social media following. YouTube, want to get to 1,000 subscribers. Instagram and Twitter, want to get to 1,000 followers. We push out a lot of great information, a lot of great content about upcoming guests and reminders about previous guests whenever it's appropriate, depending on you know time of year and events that may be going on or whatever those individual guests may have going on. And just kind of re- reasons to go back and listen to some previous episodes if you missed them in the past. So make sure you guys are subscribing. Make sure you guys are following us on all the social media sites so you can help us grow the Hazard Ground community. And tell a friend because, hey, well, we'll get more people following the Hazard Ground that way as well. Don't forget about our Amazon promotion. We are doing super well with this. As Valentine's Day is approaching, guys, if you're going to do some Amazon shopping, go to our website, HazardGround.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Do all your normal Amazon Valentine's Day shopping. Buy that special gift for that special someone. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we will donate it back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So you could take care of the one you love and take care of vets all at the same time. Remember, go to HazardGround.com first before you do all of your Amazon shopping. And just one more quick note and a solemn one at that. If you've been following the news the past couple of days, two more American soldiers were killed in Afghanistan in an insider attack. And, you know, you hear the news and it just breaks your heart. And it is, again, a serious reminder that we are still a country at war. And although many of the mainstream media, many citizens kind of forget about this and these two men who lost their lives are not getting enough pub or they're not getting enough love. They're not getting enough recognition for their service and making the ultimate sacrifice for our nation. So we hope that you guys will take a few moments to just remember that we are a nation at war and remember that we still have many of our men and women in harm's way. With that, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired Marine Corps sergeant with multiple deployments overseas. He's actually a recon Marine. For those who don't know, less than 1% of the entire Marine Corps actually makes it to be a recon Marine. Also, you can see his work in HBO's Generation Kill, a miniseries based on the best-selling book by Evan Wright. As well, he has a book of his own called Hero Living. He is Rodolfo Rudy Reyes joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Rudy, man, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me out on the show. And, and you know, I do these podcasts and I do radio and, and media. Really, I do it for, um, uh, for a two-pronged attack. Uh, first of all, to inspire and to help any of the brothers and sisters in need that have gone downrange or have been in the military or spouses or family of the military because, you know, we're going through a, a hell of a transition yeah. um, a transition phase and we're having too many people suffer and then too many uh, succumb to suicide. So anything and everything I can do to uh, connect to our, uh, our best and brightest in this damn generation of ours to help them through that transition, I do. And then the other is uh, the more people uh, find out about Force Blue, I my nonprofit that utilizes combat divers like myself from all forces and, and other militaries as well to now fight their most important battle, which is the battle to save the planet, to, to get involved in conservation. Any chance I can use a platform that people are interested in me to understand what makes me tick, that's what I do. Well, speaking of making you tick, I'm not exactly sure what makes you tick because you do like these Spartan death races, these 60-hour endurance races all over the globe. We'll get to that because that's a whole other gear that – uh, most people aren't into. But let's start back at the beginning, brother. How'd you get in the Marine Corps and why? Uh, well, you know what? I was a true believer. I was a child that believed in heroes. I, I watched Bruce Lee movies and collected comic books. Uh, I, I loved Saturday morning cartoons, and especially the heroic ones and Tarzan. And then I saw First Blood. And uh, it is so wild because uh, Sly and I are friends now. We're, we're pretty close now. But, uh, but when I was a little boy... And I saw freaking first blood and this freaking man that could survive on his own, who was strong, who understood camouflage, who had his rad survival knife with the, with the uh, compass and the, and the uh, fishing line and the fishing hooks. 
and, and his matches. I mean, I was like, wow, this is the icon. This is the Achilles. Uh, this is the homme sauvage. And, uh, and so it was always there. And I think some of us are just called to it. Some of us are just called to service. Now, military does not own the term service. It's just the, the archetype that I was drawn to was that. And, um, and I, uh, was always in sports, lifting weights and, and trying to be like my heroes. And I, I wrestled and I played football, but really, really, uh, well, I shoot guns. I, I never liked guns before my firearms because they were just so powerful. And maybe it was that superhero ethos of with great power comes great responsibility. And I, I saw growing up in the inner city, most of the, most of the people with guns, the gangbangers, they had no responsibility. So I, I was not into the military because of guns, but uh, after becoming a, a Zen Buddhist and practicing martial arts and, and kickboxing and winning some gold medals and some championships, ethically, I was cultivating my character and my soul. And President Clinton said we were putting boots on the ground because there was ethnic cleansing happening in Kosovo and in Yugoslavia. And ethically, I thought if any young man's going to go fight, I must do my duty and go fight next to them. And that's how it all started. You actually signed up prior to 9-11. So when oh, you, yes. when you oh, signed yeah, up... Oh, yeah, brother, way before. Yeah. Way before. I mean, it's a whole different attitude, mindset. Ab- so Absolutely. It was a whole different... Well, in a lot of ways, a whole different professionalism, too, uh, remember, the military was really was really small. I joined as an infantryman in the Marine Corps. I was blessed to have an opportunity to try out for recon because I was uh, top of my class and everything I was doing. And still, it was very difficult. And still, I must say, I mean, man, we had guys breaking their legs my first year at the unit. Uh, 23, 23 men died just in training, uh, mostly on the BVSS mission. We had jump missions. The very nature of the work was so freaking arduous. Um, but, uh, but because of that reason, my team, my platoon, we were the first ones to fight in Afghanistan. Um, you know, one, and actually we were fighting in Pakistan first. We were, went from ship to shore, and uh, where I was on the 15th mew. I had three years of cohesive team SOP and platoon SOP training, and that's what made, us, made me so successful. There's no such thing as a badass. There's only trained and untrained. Right. So did you know you wanted to be a recon Marine when you first signed up or is that just, yeah, as you mentioned, you, you stumbled on that cause you were so physically fit. Yeah, but I, I, I man, just to be a, a, a Marine was very tough because it was the burden of leadership. Um, I was always, I was always in charge. I was always pushing myself so hard mentally and physically and spiritually. Um, I personally thought that I did not have what it takes to be a recall Marine because there was so much amphibious work. And me coming from Omaha, Nebraska and Kansas City, Missouri, I had no experience in the ocean, no real experience in swimming. I was a land animal. Um, I was very, I was very scared. But when recon came through and I got hooked up on Camp Guard at 1-1 in Forno, um, they wanted the best and the best. And I was the Ironman and honor grad of boot camp and school of infantry. And they offered my name up the, the corporal of the guards who really believed in me knew the infantry is kind can, can be kind of stifling. Well, I was scared to try out, but my men, my super squad, they thought I was so badass. They still, you know, they, they just thought I was the most badass dude. And out of shame, I tried out and I did all the ruck run and this running and the obstacle courses. I was so fast and dominant. By the time I got to the swimming pool, I was there for like, like half an hour to rest before everybody else showed up. And, uh, and at that time, that next hour long drown proofing and water treading with rifle and swimming bricks at that time, it was the hardest thing I ever done in my life. Uh, and I don't know how I made it, but when I did, I went running to the call center. I called my dad, Rudy Reyes senior and told him I made it. To, uh, I got a, a seat 
at ARS and I have a chance to become a recon Marine and the rest is history, brother. All right. So where are you on nine 11? Uh, I was in the Persian Gulf on the way to the Persian Gulf, um, past Timor. We'd already done a, a relief mission in Timor. Uh, I was on the mess deck drawing $10 tattoos for the infantrymen. Uh, so I can make those $10, uh, phone cards so I could call my wife every week uh, on the ship. That's where I was in my in my olive draft flight suit with my boy Emilio Ramirez. And uh and I'm watching the towers get hit, but in my mind we were watching the siege on um on, on the closed circuit television and I kept thinking this is just the movie. The siege with Denzel Washington. And as it's putting together in my head, and I'm drawing this cool picture of the predator. I'm an illustrator. I'm a, um, I was the illustrator of the team and the platoon, and I'm, I guess I'm quite renowned as the best field illustrator and uh, field sketcher at that time in the Marine Corps. My, I think my drawings are still up at uh, the sniper school in Quantico when I went to, school, uh, to Quantico back in the day. Uh, so I was drawing this picture of this predator and with this dude's name on it. And, and I just couldn't put it together because it was so abstract. But the sirens started turning and and and, um, and the lights started coming on. And, and I saw some of the sailors on the mess deck that were from New York crying and screaming. And, and then over the loudspeaker, you know, it's recon and the SEALs need to report to the birthing. And it just started happening very fast, brother. Crypto got issued, pyro, uh, ammunition, orders. And we started going into our deep recon phase, uh, collecting uh, information from the region. All right. So uh, you now go where? I mean, are you part of the initial invasion into Afghanistan? Absolutely, man. Uh, <laughs> first, first uh, we... We go to Pakistan, Jacobabad, to do counter-recon, counter-sniper patrols. And that's my very first combat patrol. Point man, completely tactical, running the perimeter and then through the swamps and out into kind of a no-man's land of farms and city uh, called Jacobabad. And the reason why we're there is because we had to get all the Air Force assets, all of the uh, all of the British assets, all of our uh, bringing all the powers to bear for the big push into Camp Rhino, and then ultimately we took Camp Bihar. Um, and so uh, that first patrol was the first first time I heard the call to prayer in the morning, and they and I remember my bros that had been to uh, Bahrain. Everybody in my platoon was stacked. I had ra- I had rangers, scout snipers. My team itself, uh, uh, four of the five of us were scout snipers. Uh, some of my guys were drill instructors. These guys had been in the Marine Corps eight, ten years already to become recon Marines. It was very hard to be uh, to get to recon in those days. And when the experience was stacked, the experience was stacked. So they called they called all Muslim countries Abu Dhabi land. And I'm like, yeah, we're in Abu Dhabi land. And then that first time I hear that I call to prayer, it was predicated first with these roosters. And I'm in a swamp, this swamp of human feces and, and open sewage, because that's what you do in patrol during the day. You harbor up in the nastiest place possible so no one will come looking for you. And, um, and, uh, and then I'm hearing the, the roosters, uh, crowing and and then the the, the the animals and the, the jackasses and the donkeys braying and then I hear the ah uh, ah and it was it was so creepy it's so scary and I knew it was far 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 from home. So when you think back on that experience, what stands out to you the most about the invasion? Like, what was the toughest part? You know what? Uh, going at fighting in Kandahar, and you, you know, man, we were doing some hard ass shit. But to be real, my training missions were so much harder than anything I'd ever done in combat. 
side team, everybody dying. But uh, that wasn't that bad either because even in training missions, our guys die. So um, um, we, uh, I drove a Humvee. I mean, everything was brand new for me. I never drove a Humvee before. Really? The parachuting and combat diving into your freaking places or getting dropped to target via helicopter. Uh, I drew, drove a Humvee and I did my, my overlays in triplicate. Uh, back then, we were not even using GPS, really, on the, at the desk. Uh, and and so the recon operations center and it was us it was a platoon of seals it was uh, it was uh, damn neck uh, dev group was there mm-hmm. um, some cats from CIA um, uh, off the SAS and we were all combining efforts because we had such massive swaps of land to to cover and in those days if you saw the the imagery of the of the uh, uh, training camp with the goofy black pajama dudes on the monkey bars and and going through doorways doing their CQB with pistols. We hit that place. Uh, we took Kandahar. But I, but we were running and ro- we were rocking and rolling operations continuously. There's four teams of five guys. And one of these missions, driving a Humvee with nods on in this desolate terrain where you could just drive off of a precipice off of a mesa and be to your death. Uh, and there's bad guys out there and, uh, 70 kilometer movements at night and then digging in the Humvee at a base of a mountain and then rocking up and, and uh, patrolling up to the top of the mountain and then using our sniper systems and our close air support to interdict. We were using drones for the first time. I'd never seen a predator until then. Um, there was all kinds of challenges, which I don't know. I don't know what was the hardest thing. Um, I don't know if anything really was hard except seeing the first casualties, first American casualties for the Green Berets that that uh, did not do their proper post air support mission. They left the plug or dormant, and it would always revert back to their position. So when they did their nine line, they did their position. Um, on uh, on the terminal guidance for the birds and the, and the fast movers dropped J dam on them and kill, killed some green berets and wounded some others and some and some of our our uh, Afghan allies and the first casualties we, I saw and we had to go ret- retrieve were Americans and speaking pieces that was that was kind of tough. Sure, you obviously at the initial invasion, were you there thinking that you were going to catch bin Laden? Like, was that what you, you were told your mission was? No, it was really wild. Brother. I remember back then, I mean, we all had top secret clearances. So it was plus, um, still the information we had was very mission specific. I didn't even know the bigger plays or the bigger picture. We knew all about it. Bin Laden, we were all searching for him and going after him. But, uh, in some ways, bigger picture stuff, you people at home knew much more than we did. I knew very mission-specific stuff and some some bad players that we were going after. And then we were collecting the information that later would be turned into intelligence, and later you all would know more back home. Um, you know, I was a young point man. I was a junior man in the team. I was a corporal, and my whole life was uh, very mission-specific and... Um, I, I didn't think big picture stuff. I, I worked out every single day inside of this blown out freaking um, uh, opium factory that we turned into a rock. And it later would become this massive base called Camp Rhino. Back then it was just after we killed all the freaking bad guys, all the freaking um, Taliban, and we threw them in freaking ditches and burned them up. And we cleaned some shit up and started running 550 cord across the across the, uh, the hangar and throwing up a poncho was creating an ISO area. I mean, it was just, it was day-to-day hardcore war life, but we were completely accustomed to it. So that was my day. Those were my days and nights, bro. All right. So uh, as that whole experience starts to wind down, um, you know, because you guys left there without getting bin Laden, did you feel like you hadn't accomplished, accomplished the mission? I personally, I don't know, but I, I had a feeling that there was many, there was a, a much bigger wheels moving than just that. 
And I even think personally that Bin Laden's kind of really just a Bin Laden is just a figurehead. He did some stuff, but it was a much bigger problem than Bin Laden. Uh, there's a lot more going on than that, as we know, because trust me, right after we killed that guy, after SEAL Team 6 killed them, it's not like Afghanistan all of a sudden healed up right, and yeah. was good to go. So, so, you know what? I was wise enough to know then that, uh, and I had the, per- I, I had, a, I knew then that it was far from over and I wasn't even sure exactly why it began except there was a bigger play with, with the opium. And, uh, and remember, I was of an age that I remember when the Taliban were our friends and I was watching Rambo 3 right. and at, the, at the drive-ins. And I remember we were supplying them with Stinger missiles. And I was reading, you know, I was always reading history and reading current events. And, uh, and I just knew there was so much more dynamic and so much more complex um, factions uh, that were at play. So I really didn't know nor care. All I cared about is doing my missions and staying sharp and 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 stacking bodies and collecting reports and having shit hot discipline. Um, and that's that's what I focused on. And after seeing those dead green berets. Uh, eventually hoping that I would come home alive. That's what I was going to ask you next. I mean, did you ever worry about, or were you ever scared for your own life? I mean, I know it's hard to think about that sometimes, but where was your kind where were you, where were you with your own mortality? I, well, most, what you're first scared about, the most important thing is your reputation and that you do a freaking great job in the team. Um, the, your reputation as operator is one of, of high regard. And and actually, I, I just I started missing my wife, too, and missing and, and putting things in perspective. It wasn't necessarily like I was scared of my death, but putting things in perspective. What am I living for? Uh, these are the things that were on my mind. And, uh, and also the incredible beauty. And I kind of felt like I was reading this, this epic novel of the hero's journey, some Campbell-esque hero's journey. And I happened to be in a a character in this thing. Um, I was on a ship. Eventually I got back to the ship. It took a couple months to get back and to decompress. And, uh, and then the word on the street that, we are bombing the shit out of them now, and we're going to have follow-on forces freaking run through it. Uh, I thought, wow, I, uh, I'm blessed enough to be able to go to combat for my country and to have that experience. I had no idea that Iraq was on was looming next, but um, uh, I was a younger man then. I was I was drawing a lot of pictures and listening to some music and working out ferociously on the way back home to off gas, that incredible op temple. But in some ways I already missed it. I already missed running off. All right. So your second deployment after the invasion of Afghanistan was the invasion of Iraq. So you go from one to the other. Uh, how is this one dynamically different? What stands out about it to you? And uh, what was your specific mission set for the invasion? Man, it was so radically different. And there's a funny story. My platoon commander, Captain Dill, uh, he went on to work for bigger agencies. And I got back home a hero. I pinned on sergeant. I had combat deployment with combat action. Um, I was dual cool. I had jump and dive. I was Mr. Cool Guy back on the block and in, in, uh, on Pendleton and in Oceanside and Carlsbad. Um and and I was kind of being groomed to be an instructor because I had experience, and um, and it was just so wild. And I started hearing hearing scuttlebutt at the command post about Iraq, and so I I called ECD East Coast Destruction Eric Dill, uh, Eric C Dill, my platoon commander. He was in DC. He said, Rudy, don't you worry about a tank team. We're not going to Iraq. I mean, if we're going to go to Iraq, you're going to get some new uh, gas masks and 
and they're going to get issued NBC gear, uh, you know, nuclear biological chemical gear. And, and I told my wife at the time, Shuri, uh, don't worry, I'm going to be an instructor here. We're going to actually have a life now because uh, this first four years I was completely engaged and gone all the time in schools and training and combat. And, uh, and then sure enough, the next week I get issued a new gas mask and, and we're all going to the gas chamber. I'm like, oh shit, I guess it's on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, but, but I was excited because now I was an assistant team leader. I was with my best friends, still my same guys from Iraq. I had my grunts, the few grunts that we, that we brought over from, from, uh, one, one Gabe Garza and, and, uh, and then Hector Leon and James Chapman and Espera. We were freaking excited to be back in the freaking fight again, working on SOPs, training, training, training. Uh, and now, because we were the most experienced guys at the unit and really in California, maybe in the whole damn Marine Corps, we were the most experienced guys in the whole Marine Corps in this modern warfare. And, and we were going to, spearhead this raider style screening mission in which you were going to use speed as our security and initially we were we were called to secure the bridge in Nazaria and that was the mission that I was even training for and doing SOPs for um, as a platoon stateside before we even got to Kuwait but as you know, if you follow Generation Kill, things happen very fast. Um, the Brooks got pinned down in uh, in Nazaria, and then we took over the spearhead for the entire invasion, all the First Marine Division. Um, but uh, but but we trained and did all this work, even stateside in gas masks and in mop suits. I mean. Man, I look back at the discipline we had and the passion because it was freaking hard. We were doing patrols, tactical patrols in this shit. And, um, and I thought we did an amazing job. As the invasion goes on, do you have any idea about the amount of resistance you're going to encounter and how tough that resistance would be? No. It, brother, it was, I mean, it was, and now it's bloody too, bro. I mean, just burning bodies dropping air, smoking fools uh, with the long gun and close quarters, hellfire missiles all around us with our cast, with our cobras. Um, it, it was uh, the first five days, no sleep at all. Continuous movement, continuous movement to, to contact uh, and then coordinating with other units too and and, and blue on blue, we had units lighting us up, and and uh, and then the moment we had time to dig in, and then the small winds and the rainstorm comes. I mean, it was just one biblical freaking event after another. And now I find myself two weeks in this damn thing, not, not even not even slept more than freaking 15, you know fifteen minutes, and all the chow is gone, all the water is gone. Now we're having to get water from tributaries from the Euphrates, putting bleach and iodine in them. Brothers, due to the burning bodies and burning shed of people and metals, we end up getting dysentery. Everybody in the platoon gets dysentery but me. Everyone's freaking diarrhea and, and vomiting in these mop suits, and we're still fighting on. Um, we had no idea. Time was slipping away from me then. Some of the battles and some of the some of the engagements, I, I sometimes only remember when my friends bumped into me that I haven't seen my bros in a while, and they tell me about this shit hot thing or that shit hot thing, and I'm like, wow, that's right, we did that. And uh, it, was, uh, it was heavy, man. It was really heavy. All right, so uh, how long do you end up staying there on that second deployment? Well, we chopped away to Baghdad, I believe, in three weeks. Yeah. And... Uh, and I was out there on that freaking rooftop. It was actually a building, uh, like the fourth or fifth floor, with Chris Kyle and him and this well, were on one corner. We were on another corner. We were stacked heavy with snipers, um, and uh, and it was wild, man. It was wild. All the historic stuff that was happening. I will say this: 
I operated with all kinds of people, and I never operated with anybody with more discipline and more professionalism than recon. And that just goes across the board. So that deployment ends. Um, you come back to the States for a little bit. Uh, and long story short, you end up getting back to Iraq for Fallujah and Ramadi. When exactly does that happen for you? That happens in March. Um, or maybe no, February of 04. Okay. And, um, and I mean, bone chilling, ice cold out there. Um, and still about sometimes 50, 60 degrees during the day, which just means we're going to be running harder and hotter. Um, uh, and we're all kitted up, but man, we've got so much experience. We're all warlords by then. All of us team leaders got a lot of experience. My team leader was hit. who's a legend, just retired from Marsoc, Sergeant Patrick. I think he got it out as a master guns and, uh, Larry Sean Patrick. Um, he is now an instructor, Myself and Eric Tucker and a couple other guys that were way back in Afghanistan and are one our team leaders and the most pipe hitting and most freaking savage, most face eating team leaders recon's got. Um, but we were immediately thrust into these strange and impossible situations. I was uh, taking over for the airborne the army and uh, and we were doing left seat, right seat, and the the army at that time, because they had begun that insurgency, they'd been begun fighting that insurgency. They were getting shwacked with IEDs and sniper fire and RPG and machine gun initiated uh, ambushes. And they were running scared and they were driving as fast as they could everywhere. They had no aggressive posture. And then, so that's why they brought recon in to just lay down the wall. So I was eating chow early on with the left seat, right seat, um, uh, battlefield turnover, uh, with eight seconds, I believe. Um, and we were at this place called the Viper ASP, which was a, a massive, like four, uh, 20 kilometers, uh, a 20 square kilometer ammo dump in which the insurgents where there was no security there at all. They were just coming in to grab 155 rounds and every bit of explosives as they could and mortars and such, and just turning them into IEDs and or using their rockets from, from self-made tubes and dumping them into Camp Pollution. Uh, so our job was to kill the rocket man and, and, and shut this whole thing down. We are at the little chow hall. It was like a, a pretty flat building in the Viper ASP and we were eating chow with, with the contractors, uh, the Blackwater contractors uh, that were killed and then hung up on that bridge that morning. And uh, you know what, man? Looking back at that time before it got super hot or as it was getting hot, I was not impressed with anybody's discipline. Everybody was acting like it was too cool for school. The contractors... Um, a couple of them were overweight. I was not impressed at all. And, uh, and I could tell everybody just thought they were a little too shit hot and they were too much into their kit and their slick guns instead of their attitude and their military posture. And sure enough, those contractors were freaking shot up and hung from the bridge, uh, that day. So we got a call as we were left seat, right seat to do a blocking position for TAG or Delta Force as we're setting up some perimeter so that they can try to get these guys uh, off that bridge. And so because we assume we have fire superiority, all of us recall brothers bust out into machine gun positions, overwatch with the heavy guns, and then all the snipers got our long guns up and this village is starting to get crazy about 500 meters from us. And Delta's going in there to do a snatch and grab or a hit in the middle of the day. And they've got grail freaking heat-seeking weapons. And they shoot that little bird, boom, right out of the sky above me. Delta's caught with their freaking pants down for a second. And do you know what recon does? 
we freaking machine gun and open up and waste all those people and and freaking put the law down and uh, create. We, we, we hit them so hard and with such violence that they were not able to reassemble and reattack. And, uh, and right then, right then, right then and there, I knew the op tempo and what was going to be successful for us. And after that, uh, things got bloodier. We lost some of our brothers. But uh, battalion commander completely took off the collars and chains. And I did every kind of mission you can imagine. Kilo inserts, we did a jump mission. I did continuous sniper missions. And then I did something called Operation Trojan Horse. Well, my team, my platoon, was chopped away to an ODA unit with CIA assets. And we became hunter-killers dressed as locals or, or no, dressed as foreign chow hall workers and laundromat workers and contractors to be bait for this insurgency so that they could try to kidnap us and we would kill them close quarter within feet of each other and then uh, collect information on all their comms and such and then do direct action hits at night uh, to, to minimize the, the, uh, the uh, collateral damage mm-hmm. and to be very precise and very direct in cutting the head off the snake. And that's what I did for the next seven months. So uh, it was a blur. Uh, I was climbing bridges in the cover of darkness with explosives that I'd rehearsed for a week and blowing up bridges with bad guys coming across. Um, I, I was, we were doing close quarter combat. We were doing long gun work, close air support as well. I mean, anything and everything. And to our team, our platoon's credit, uh, Captain Von Krauss and some of my other brothers, um, we brought all of our men home alive in my, in my team and my platoon. And we were doing the most bloodthirsty stuff out there. So when that ends in late 04, how quickly do you get back for Ramadi in 05? Uh, uh, I was actually 04. And uh, during that deployment, I was chopped between uh, Ramadi and Fallujah okay. and TQ. I was floating all over that Sunni triangle. I finally get home, I guess, nine months later. Um and I, I had re-enlisted before, and my enlistment had, had come up. And so I had to, I, I chose to extend with my team. What's so wild, when I finally get home, I'm already out of the Marine Corps. And I look back, and I'm amazed at how successful I was at keeping the wheels on the vehicle of my life, considering... I had zero transition of any sort. I was speaking, uh, stacking bodies and eating off faces. And in this complete hunter killer warlord mindset and had been doing this hard work. And then after my last kill, last heavy op, I think I was home two weeks later and I was out of the Marine Corps. Go back to when you lose some of your guys. Um, you know, it, everybody reacts differently to that. Um, but you seem to have this very mission-focused mentality where you understand some of that is just kind of the cost of doing business. The old, you know, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs mentality. Um, was there anything about that that was ever emotional for you? Uh, yes. Um, well, what was... The, the worst was this. The worst, well, probably the worst is that I'm only now beginning to, after all these years, to process and grieve that. I wish uh, I had the maturity and the wherewithal to know that I must stay in the game and keep my team in the game. The only way through this is to be so focused and operationally sound that the best way I could show love and honor to my men is by keeping them alive. And, by, and the way to keep them alive is to keep them as violent and as dangerous as possible. And so, uh, so that's what I did. And what was, what was so wild, well, I, I, was, I was getting pulled out of this very hard sniper mission 
and it was around in March. It was very cold, and uh, and I was in the Euphrates in the in the grasslands there, and the water table was was really low, so it was soaking wet on my belly for three days, and then at night, you know, laid up freezing and doing the day patrolling. So I sweat soaked and soaking wet, and the wind's coming in and so cold. I remember. When the sun would come up, I would just creep out my left hand, my support hand, to try to get some sun on it, on the fingers, and then switch up my shooting position and do the same with the right hand. And um, after three or four days, uh, uh, and I, we were all dead stuff. We were extracted um, by, by the, I believe, a cat team back to my platoon. It was at a mobile lock. We call an operations center, a snap rock that we made loaded up in my vehicles which were open except for these half iron door or half armor doors our heavy gun up top was really our security and you're well, patrolling back through this hamlet called Al Karma get back to the mech and uh, I was very fatigued bone tired very cold and I um, still candied up and I I didn't recognize immediately we were being channelized in these 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 roads that were skylined because the, the little fields were were like in a honeycomb underneath this, but but the the grade of the slope was too dangerous. If you didn't drive your Humvee Humvee exactly correct, you might roll the freaking Humvee. Um, and I looked. I'm on the passenger side. I'm the team leader. My assistant team leader, um, Bo Eisen, is on the left, and. Uh, I see these women looking in G's eyes, and I see his eyes flash over my right shoulder. I look over my right shoulder. I see a woman and two kids running in a little mud hut, and I just know something. I I saw the flash of the woman's eyes, and I saw pure fear. And I just happened to look to my left, and there's an RPG team right across the canal about 40 feet from me, 30 feet from me. And they shoot an RPG right at me. I think this is it. I hear the boom of the RPG coming. And the RPG passes right between, behind my head and in front of my heavy gun, right through us, and hits this kind of hot area next to us. Boom! And it blows up. We can flag and... Um, and, and smoke go everywhere, and immediately I call contact left. And we have such great SOPs, everybody herringbones. I'm out of the vehicle, throw my weapon up on the hood, and engage this RPG team. My gunners on the free gun, they have the, the, the 50 cal um, on on free gun. TME is off, and he just points that thing to target and pours fire that modus into that team in their height, they're shooting behind and around this car, an automobile. Kinetic force and the slap rounds of that and they explode this vehicle and frag and smoke fly into us and the hood of the vehicle is flying in the air and it's flying so slowly, flopping up in the air with the smoke trailing it from the engine block exploding and and because of that, I see all these other enemy, 10, 15, their faces looking up, watching this beautiful ballet of violence happening. And I recognize we're, we're being ambushed, um, maybe, by a, maybe by a superior force. Uh, my vehicle, vehicle behind me are cut across the canal, and uh, the rest of his platoon, the three other vehicles are on the other side, and we open up and start rocking and rolling, chopping our way through this ambush. And I'm out on foot, directing fires and then getting vehicles turned around. And then we DD out of there. And now we're being engaged on both sides. And we chop our way out. We all get some pretty badass medals, killing all these fools. And, uh, and, and also, I know we're all very lucky to be alive. Rounds and RPG are snapping by us. Um, we're at about 55 miles an hour, uh, egressing, and uh, doing a fighting withdrawal. And I hit a bump. I hear my gunner go, oh, shit. McCoy goes, oh, shit. 
I don't know how I hear all of this coming because it's freaking exploding all around us, but it's interesting how your senses work. And I look behind me, my right shoulder, and I see my radio man and machine gunner flying in the air, rolling, uh, on the, and then hitting the street and rolling because we're at speed. Now, it's so funny, he, this guy, Avial, always bitched about me making everybody put on elbow pads and knee pads. And they're like, the social race is bullshit, you know? And I said, you're going to put on your PPE. Everybody's wearing elbow pads and knee pads. You're working in and out of urban environments. You're going to put on this shit, you understand? Turned out, uh, 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 my assistant team leader, Bo, slammed on the brakes. Avial still rolling the the... The uh, door that he fell out of is open. He run, he stops rolling, gets up, jumps right back in the vehicle, and then we freaking go again. And we're still chopping our way through these heap with these people and sheep and enemy. Um, we make it back to the base, and we're so freaking high on being alive. And I'm going into debrief, but my brother platoon, uh, my brother platoon wants to go out and get some. Now it's the middle of the day, and and the team leader is Eric Cucker, who's my best friend. And we came up to recon and ARS and did everything together, all the same platoons in, in, in combat. And um, and they send him in. And uh, the force that we chopped our way out of, they, they organized again and had, this is hours later, three or four hours later, and they had the machine guns and RPGs set up. And they hit Eric. And they took my buddy Eddie Wrights, took his arms, uh, wounded everybody in the in the team. His platoon commander was killed. Had to get back from debrief immediately back in to go uh, to go cast it back and chop him out. And uh, and it was just it was just immense because as I was putting my as we were chopping all the way back into the battle. Birds were coming in to get our wounded and dead. My brother platoon. I get back to the hard base. We've got uh, we've got fucking bodies stacked of all the kills. We got thirty plus kills, and I mean we're now into Lord of the Flies, and we are stacking these bodies on top of our Humvees that are freaking ripped apart heads and entrails and shit and blood all over the Humvees and the top of the gypsy rack, these dead bodies, these dead uh, fighters, the blood coming down like deer down the middle of the damn windshield. And we're going through Fallujah. We're showing the world, we're showing the world there um, that we're the, we're the wrong guys to fuck with. And we get back to the hard base and we're throwing the bodies off and dumping them all off into the hard base. And we've got some prisoners too. And um, and we're 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 going through their pockets and we're doing some SSE, but really it's more of a blood right. We're there and we're we're just smoking, killing these motherfuckers, and we want to and we're taking off freaking prizes. And as I am pulling my my 50 cal sniper system off my gypsy rack, my old buddy Jack, who's made famous for saving our lives and in, in Generation Kill by utilizing that Mark 19 and blowing up those buildings all around us with the, ins with the insurgents uh, when we were in that Hogan's Alley um, Wapakia early in, in the fight um, to take that dad. Uh, I see by his posture and his face, and, you know, we can't say who's wounded and who's killed by name over the radio, and I kept my men from thinking about who's dead by putting in the work immediately you know, count, counting up gear and getting ready for another debrief. And I look at Jack, uh, Anthony, and I said, is, is San Juan? Is, it, is San Juan all right? And he's like, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I say, is, is Walt Hacker okay? Yeah. I said, what about Eric? And when we said Eric, he, went, he just looked down. And I was pulling my, I was pulling my, 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 my sniper system off the, the hood there and off the, off the gypsy rack on top and my knees gave out and I just took a knee and pretended like 
I'm on the hood of the vehicle. I just took a knee because my legs got, gave out, and I, I just took a knee and, 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 and like, fastened down some gear like I was just working because everybody was there in the freaking command post, and we got stacks of freaking enemy bodies, and everyone's high and raging and, and or exhausted. And that was about all I did ever to show anything to include to myself that, mm-hmm. that, that I was affected. All right. So uh, you mentioned Generation Kill a couple of times, the HBO miniseries. How does that come about? Well, that came, you know, a couple of years later. Man, it's so wild how fast and furious everything was. The interesting is, I was used to living lifetimes, like in seconds. And the, the Greeks have two terms for time. They've got uh, they've got chronos for the clock time, as we know, clock time. And then they have another term called kairos, which means lifetime. And I had I had so much lifetime that chronos I uh, didn't really make sense to me. So looking back, I was fighting in Fallujah. In personal training and boxing, and then buying a new house for my wife that I was completely, my wife at the time, that I was completely disconnected to, and a life that I was completely disconnected to. I, I, was, I was somehow creating this new business or whatever. I was a workaholic. I hadn't started doing drugs yet. I was just drinking alcohol. I never drank alcohol before until after I got out of the Marine Corps. Um, and uh, and then HBO calls. And actually, I'm the, the wheels are falling off the bus. Nobody knows, but my mind is going insane. My body hurts immensely from this op temple I keep going at. Um, and, uh, and I've been going to the VA trying to get some help because I started fighting in the streets. And it was becoming alcoholic, and and I, I, uh, I, I, I almost killed uh, a man uh, in a bar fight. Then I fought a few other times just on the street for somebody looking at me wrong behavior that I never had before. Completely disassociated to everybody in my life except the clients and the work and the and the operational pace. And so when HBO called. I needed somebody to help uh, organize dog and pony so that the production could see what recon's about. It was like a, a shining light for me to um, bring some kind of hope back to my life in which at least the, my recon unit, who I loved so much, has really been the only love of my life that I could count on. I could do something of service to it. And that's how it all started. I put together a big trip with Pendleton, and we did a dog and pony with all of our assets. We did drown trooping and walk and, and, and combat water survival. Um, we did obstacle courses hand to hand, did some weapons stuff. And HBO, I guess, fell in love with me because I was so good at putting things together and they wanted me to teach and train the actors. And, um, and that's how, and that's how generation kill started for me. Um, but when we got to filming, and first of all, the actors were fantastic with training, and, and they took it all so, so, so seriously. So did we. Eric Tucker and I were the instructors. Um, it, it, when I was filming, they were asking me to be Sergeant Reyes from the invasion. But that Sergeant Reyes was long, long, long gone. This new this new Reyes, this new freaking team leader, Warlord Reyes from Fallujah Ramadi existed now. And... And I was a pow- I was a powder keg with the fuse lit, and um, I'm amazed I kept it together as long as I did. And uh, it was just very interesting. I-, I thought at the time it was it would help me immensely by, in a sense, reliving war because that would make me feel better. And in some ways, it really did. It would be kind of like be kind of like. Um, methadone you know it was it was just another drug not quite as powerful as the drug combat that i had before and it staved off some of the effects until another year or two after that and after i was in the entertainment business and 
I developed a quite quite a hard drug problem, uh, drug habit. I, I developed a self abuse habit that no one else could see but me, and I was very upset and sad every night. Uh, you know, I was in rage or tears every day, but I didn't let anybody see it. And I just became that consummate workaholic. I started contracting as well, did some television shows too. Uh, failed, made, uh, had relationships, and failed in them horribly. Um, it was, uh, you know, at the time I thought it was just me and I was the biggest piece of shit ever on that. Why am I not able to get my head together and why is nothing making me happy? And like, I felt like tears of a clown, you know, I'm smiling just to keep from crying. Uh, and then now we realize perspective because it's all completely natural. Everybody was going through this. And actually I was blessed to get a to, to, to to crash and burn so hard and then have some people that love me enough to help me come back. Right. So when does this whole Spartan race death challenge thing become part of your life? Is that part of the kind of the rehab and getting off the drugs and everything else? You know, what's so wild. I went to the veterans village of San Diego. Uh, I was, um, I did this ultimate survival Alaska thing and, um, and you know, it's very interesting. There's, um, it was a survival race, but it wasn't really a race. It was a program. And uh, I got in some fights there. And and uh, the production intentionally kept us in these conditions to make drama happen. Um, and they were, and my mind and my heart was seriously at risk. And, um, and, uh, some people thought I was going to kill, uh, the, you know, cause I have a live weapon and they were afraid for their lives. So they put me in a mental institution out there and, and it was Eric Cucker with the power of HBO that contacted National Geographic and said, listen, you motherfuckers, um, we're going to freaking crush your entire network. We're going to sue you. We're going to show the world what National Geographic is really about. You put this, this combat veteran, this freaking hero, who has clinical PTSD, has been in and out of uh, the VA, and, and and you're you're stressing him in this way just for a program. It's not even real. And now you've done this to him, and we're gonna we're gonna put it out on out on the street. We're gonna sue you. We're gonna fucking crush your reputation. So National Geographic pulls me out of this fucking most horrible place I'd ever been in Anchorage, Alaska, in a damn padded cell. I was so close to suicide at the time for shame. Um, uh, they paid me in full. Then they had me recreate this fake injury that I broke my legs. And that's why I did not go forward. I had to sign an NDA and all this. But of course... Some of the other teammates, I guess I did really good on the show and people remember me. Uh, some other guys, I guess, might have been jealous or and their careers did not go as good as mine did, especially forward. I'm doing so good now. And, uh, and because because I've always been I've always been 100 percent heart driven and I've never been Semper I. It's always been Semper Fi. Mm -hmm. uh, they go ahead and, and leak it. That like that I was uh, you know out of my mind and and that that um that I was asked to leave the show and it wasn't exactly like that and so HB uh, so so when I was in the veterans village of San Diego I was put away in a program for a year to help my mind because remember I wasn't doing drugs or anything up there in 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 Alaska it was uh it was just my PTSD was just I was just unraveling. And um, needless to say, that was five years ago. I jumped back and exploded back uh, because I was really brought to my knees. And goodness, so I could really assess and self-assess and uh, make some decisions as a man now what I'm going to live for. And that's how Spartan Race started. They did on September on 9-11, on September 11th, they did a, a veteran race with wounded veterans and it was all of us warriors together as a team and it was so compelling on one of the episodes 
they asked me back to start leading their agoges about two years ago. And, um, and so to utilize my military skills, my leadership skills, communication, to build people uh, individually and to, to cre- create an environment where they coalesce uh, and they galvanize together. And that's what the Spartan Race and Go Gay is about. And, uh, I had the most incredible austere experiences in Mongolia and in Namibia and uh, Hong Kong and in Greece and uh, Sparta itself. And, uh, and really, it's just it's the rebirth of Rudy Reyes. It's the first time it's just been Rudy Reyes. It's not Sergeant Reyes. And it's not uh, Generation Kill. Um, uh, Rudy Reyes. It's not. Uh, it's not husband Rudy Reyes or or a big brother anymore. It's just Rudy for the first time on my own terms for me and for that reason, doing so many other things that are so positive and and I've got a great woman in my life now. Uh, I'm excited about seeing my children for the holidays, Dylan and and Belladonna. Uh, I'm very fit and happy and I've got my got a fitness app I just filmed and I've got tons of TV and movie work I do now as well. I couldn't be better, but it took me getting back down into the mud, the real mud and and the sweat and the grind and the blood of my life um, to wash it off and get into that river of life again and and then uh and, and become clean in that river. And now I'm back on the bank and I'm making steps and I'm making moves and I'm, I'm reaching for that high ground. So let me ask you about the PTSD portion. You know, I mean, one, when you think back, how long did it take you to recognize that you had it? And two, you know, is it something now that you wish you had given more credence to earlier? Uh, you know what? I ignore, I denied it forever because the survivor's guilt and my brothers that are dead, Jesky and, and First Sergeant Smith and and uh, Caruso and Bagoni and and and, uh, and then Eddie's lost his arms and and Eric lost his mind and so I just kept saying, you know, Rudy, you got it so easy, you know, you're not hurt enough, you're you're doing just fine, you just need to get your shit together, uh, absolutely. Um, Sadly, during those Bush years when we were in such heavy combat, nobody was talking about this. And there are many from my generation of those heavy, fast, and furious wars that were left by the wayside and have taken their lives. And uh, um, it really, it really took me uh, creating Force Blue by, by creating Force Blue. Um, my my nonprofit that utilizes combat divers and commandos and amphibious command, commandos like myself to do ocean conservation, to be around other of my brothers, uh, Sergeant Sparks, um, uh, the legendary recon marine ranger who is now the highest decorated pararescueman of all time, and, and my pararescue community, my SEAL community, Jeff Gum. Uh, I got this guy, Kais Larson, who's absolutely a brother of mine too. And we are all getting our bros together. I've got a young man that is my protege. His name's Paul Wayman, and uh, he's a, he was in a sniper platoon and, and a grunt, and I trained him when he was 18. Uh, getting us all together, recognizing we're all going through these, these same things because we all are affected, and it's natural, and it's natural. And PTS, as uh, it, Grossman says it doesn't have to be PTSD. Let us turn it into PTSG, post-traumatic stress growth. Let's go into the growth aspect I like that. of it and understand yeah. that these are sacred, sacred experiences, and we have a depth of knowledge and wisdom from the the, uh, the agony and the ecstasy. And let us use that to empower ourselves and our people. Um, I've been on a steady climb for the last four years, five years. Thank you, Rick Elder from Beyond Clothing, a ranger brother of mine who was the first guy to take, you know, take a chance on me and give me a job uh, after I got out of the Veterans Village of San Diego. And I mean, now I'm back doing um, big screen stuff. I'm, I got a, a project I'm doing with History Channel really soon, um, shooting video games too. I mean, but it took me 
to really wash all of that off and even say to myself, I need help because I can't do it all myself. And it's such an interesting conundrum. If you know a little bit about my media and the impact that I have in the veteran community, I have, I have thousands reaching out to me every single day. So I have in some ways have become an example of veteran transition, of warrior transition. And that sometimes I'm that light uh, that people were looking to, but I myself was still struggling. Um, now I I keep my four pillars, and my four pillars are physical fitness. My uh, second pillar is um, is community, my brotherhood, and my veteran community, my my family, my kids, and my loved one. I've seen this wonderful woman Jade, and been very instrumental in that. Uh, number three is mother nature. I need to be engaged outside in the ocean, in the mountains, in the in the woods, uh, uh, in in the plains. And number four is mission, uh, a mission of virtue, something I believe in, in in totality, something that is my magnetic north that I continue to pursue towards. With those four pillars, uh, you can create a table uh, or a shelter, um, and uh, and I'm strong enough now and wise enough. Because I, I have some perspective. If, if any of those pillars are shaky, then I reach out for help. And now I have a support structure of brothers and sisters that are there for me. Um, this is what works for me. And I, and I use it and, and show it by example in, in hopes that it, it gives some, some strength and it gives some healing to the other brothers and sisters out there. Well, that's beautiful, man. I mean, that's uh, honestly encapsulates a lot of what we talk about here on the podcast and, you know, the solution for PTS is different for everybody. It's just how you get there. And I certainly like the idea of PTSG, that growth afterwards. Rudy Reyes, man. Yeah, isn't that good stuff, bro? It really is, you know. No, it is. I mean, and I think it encapsulates it because, you know, the label of a disease gets such a bad rep. And it sort of brings it to a negative place. But if you talk about growth, it's always something positive. And sometimes that first kind of mental hurdle, clearing it, thinking that you're growing, not necessarily fixing something that's broken, Maybe a big part of the reason why people could succeed. So, I, I, I definitely that's a great definitely way to put great. it. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful way to put it. It's, it's broken. I don't. We're not broken. We're scarred. Yeah. You know, scars. Those things are things that we have honor about, and and we're proud of. Sure, they hurt, and 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 if we've got frag in us, emotional and spiritual frag, we cut that shit out and irrigate the wound. And, and pack in some antibiotics and we heal it. But there will be a scar and we will remember it. But at least when we touch it against the freaking chair, we'll move it through a hallway. It doesn't hurt anymore. You know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. Well, listen, man, I, I love your story. Thank you so much for being honest and sharing it with me. And your message out there is clear. And people know where they can find you and get a hold of you. And I certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Oh, you're welcome, brother. I hope it was a great podcast. And thank you for having the patience and the understanding to get me on here because really it is about helping the brothers and sisters in need uh, um, you know, we're, we're just having too many of, of them, uh, of them succumb to suicide or our best and brightest of our generation. So I'm here to do something about that. Oh, Rudy Reyes. Thanks a lot, man. You're welcome, brother. Much love. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.